0: Hi, I'm Jeremy Ullman, and this is Abstract, a podcast where I'll be interviewing graduate students to learn about their research in a way that makes it accessible, bringing into the discussion aspects that are fun but challenging, covering a day in the life, and also just throwing around cool theories and groundbreaking findings that they've come across in their readings. My goal here is to tap into the wealth of information swirling around graduate students' minds, culminating from months to even years of research and reading. We're going to harness that knowledge together, one episode at a time. Before we hop into things, here's a list of the kind of topics you can expect to hear about on today's episode. So, we discuss the gravitational pull of the cognitive sciences, the integrated program in neuroscience, the effect of perspective taking on the perception of Native American art using priming, quantitative and qualitative analysis, suppressing of unwanted thoughts, what it means to be WEIRD in all caps, biased and prejudiced. We talk about animal versus human research, taking pictures of the brain with giant magnets and other imaging techniques, The effects of maternal illness and THC exposure on disorders in offspring. How a mother's compromised immune system affects fetal development. Jellybean mice. What we learn from a baby's first poop. The importance of laying the foundation of a solid work-life balance early on in your career. And finally, my own question gets flipped on me for the first time this and much, much more on today's episode of Abstract. So let's get right into it. Lani Kupo is originally from Pennsylvania, but in 2014, she ventured to Occidental College in Los Angeles to study theater and follow her dreams of becoming an actress, beginning a second major in cognitive science as a hobby. A year after starting research, she fell in love with it and spent the rest of her time in college pursuing projects that took her from Kathmandu, Nepal, to Potsdam, Germany. The pursuit of knowledge finally brought her to Montreal where she uses small animal magnetic resonance imaging to better understand how risk factors like illness during pregnancy and cannabis use impact early life development. In her free time, Lani can be found singing opera and acapella and playing Dungeons and Dragons. So we've got the whole package today on Abstract. Without further ado, let's welcome Lani to the podcast. Lani, how are you?
1: Thank you so much for having me, I'm doing well.
0: Awesome, it's great to have you. This is a very nice introduction. I like that you kind of <laughs> run, a, weave us through your, your earlier <laughs> academic travels. I would love to, to kind of fill in some blanks there and I guess maybe even in story format, kind of run us through what kinds of degrees you're doing. Are, are you currently pursuing a PhD?
1: Yeah, so I've technically finished my first thesis year of my PhD. I did a rotation program at McGill first, which kind of guided me from the bachelor's into the PhD.
0: Okay. So no master's degree. Did you do like a joint master's PhD program, fast track thing?
1: So within McGill in this, uh, in the integrated program of neuroscience or IPN, there's like this special program, which is the rotation program. And in a way it's set up more like the States where it's more common to do your bachelor's. And then if you know you want to do a PhD, you can go straight into it. It usually takes longer. It's like six years and it like the first couple of years are more course focused so i I had applied to McGill's rotation program and came in through that venue
0: What does the rotation imply here? What are you rotating through? Yeah
1: great question. <laughs> so it's uh, the labs that you go to. So oh. in my case, I was in three different labs, and it's supposed to give you a sense of not only what that research is like, but how it is to work with a specific supervisor or in a super, uh, specific lab environment to really give you a sense of the fit on that side as well.
0: So the rotation was the undergrad or the beginning of the PhD?
1: That's the beginning of the PhD.
0: Okay. So you've been at, at McGill then for your whole under, for your whole academic career?
1: Sorry, no. So I was in Occidental College right. uh, yep. for my bachelor's. That's where I did two, master- or, sorry, two uh, majors there. Mm-hmm. And then right after that, essentially, I applied to come to McGill. So I've been here since fall of 2018.
0: Okay. I think we need to address the fact that you did a huge 180 here on a dropping <laughs> your dreams of becoming an actress to <laughs> going into the integrated program in neuroscience. That seems like a pretty huge jump. What was, like, how do you even reconcile that?
1: Yeah, so during my high school days, I was very into theater, and for a while, I thought it was the only thing that I really wanted to pursue, but I also was always very interested and curious about my schoolwork and the academic side of things. So when I went to Occidental, I knew that my primary major was going to be theater, Um, And in Los Angeles, that's where you try to audition for things and make connections and kind of, you know, you and half the rest of the population is there trying to make it in show business. But I also suspected that like my intellectual curiosities wouldn't be completely satisfied by a theater major. um, And I wanted to kind of diversify it a little bit. And I learned about the cognitive science major there, which is really looking at how we think and uh, it's, it's philosophy and linguistics and computer science all rolled into this one uh, and neuroscience in this one subject. So I took a lot of courses there as well. And pretty early on, I started getting involved in research. One of the professors, Alexander Sherman, was super open to having me start, even though I had no previous experience. And that project really got me interested in pursuing a, a career in research and hopefully teaching as well someday.
0: Wow. That's incredible. Honestly, that that there was that paradigm shift while you were doing two completely different things. I feel like cognitive science has that ability to pull people away from one path and redirect them. It's such a, it's like a catch all program where you kind of have all these different paths you can take. I I actually switched from physics into cognitive science in my undergrad. So I also was, you know, I succumbed to the the (laughs) gravitational pull of cognitive science.
1: Seduced by cognitive science. It's a seduction. (laughs) Oh my, that's
0: a better word for it. Absolutely seduction. So what was the project that you worked on when you were in your bachelor's degree then?
1: Yeah, so I heard about this project because I was in a class that was about American Indians in film, how they're portrayed in mainstream media, but also how they, how, how films are created within communities and how they differ often. And the professor mentioned this project that she was collaborating with Dr. Sherman on, which is using eye tracking data primarily in order to understand how different primings, and I can explain that more, affect how we perceive art of native americans so specifically there were photographs of native americans and participants in our experiment would come into the our laboratory and we'd read them a different segment we'd either prime them to try to suppress any stereotypes that they have or take the perspective of the individuals that they saw in the pictures or we just tell them to passively view the photographs and then we'd set them up in front of the computer and they'd have chin rest and look at the screen and we would display an image and we'd uh, display it for about 15 seconds, and they could look at whatever they wanted to look at. In the, It, it was mostly like the head and shoulders of different okay. individuals. Mm-hmm. And then we also had them rate how much they liked the image, how emotional it made them feel, and then write a little response to it. So we could analyze all these different metrics, quantitatively looking at how, what they looked at, what they fixated on in the image, and also kind of qualitatively assessing what words they used to describe the image based on those three conditions that they were put into.
0: That's, that's definitely more, you were definitely asking more of your participants in that study than I have been asked as an undergraduate <laughs> participant in many other studies, where they just they stare <laughs> at the screen for an hour. So I'm glad you yeah. actually created a more, a more creative and engaging paradigm. I'm sure that must've led to some interesting results. What I'm curious about first and foremost, because from my knowledge, just from reading about eye tracking studies, when we're looking at faces, we're basically making a triangle between the two eyes and the mouth. Because yeah. th- these are like the most expressive parts of the face that communicate the most. I'm assuming in these, in these portraits, maybe the, you know, the individuals in the images were wearing specific kinds of clothing that might have attracted attention. But what do you see in terms of the difference between just looking at regular faces, or, or mm-hmm. I guess faces of just random people, versus faces specifically of American Indians?
1: So, yeah, actually, it's interesting because the images that displayed kind of crossed a spectrum. Some of them were dressed in like what you might consider like modern day streetwear, and others were wearing more traditional clothing. And we found that overall, those in the perspective taking condition spent more time looking at the eyes and the mouth, the face of the individual. And those in the stereotype suppression condition spent more time looking at the clothing and the additional items on the images.
0: The stereotype suppression condition. So you were reading them a passage to make them be less stereotypical, and then they focus more on the potentially stereotyped clothing.
1: So this is actually, um, was according to the hypotheses, what we expected as well. Because if you try to suppress a thought, you know, if you're trying to say like, oh, like I shouldn't think of something stereotyped or like even more basic than that. I shouldn't think about like a purple elephant it's very difficult to not think about that. But innately, this is what a lot of people try to do, I think, if, they, if they're concerned about like having a stereotyped mindset, they'll try to like not think about it rather than try to take the perspective of somebody else.
0: The, the implication of this seems like, and you know, this might be very controversial, but does this, does this imply that you know, talking about things like racism are more likely to incite racist behaviors?
1: I think that would be taking it, uh, the finding to an extreme, like over overstating <laughs> okay. it a bit. So okay. uh, right, yeah, sure. I, because I think it's it's a little more nuanced than that, right? It's like, if, if we just try not to think or talk about it, then clearly that doesn't make us not think or talk about it, you know? So maybe uh, one o- option or approach is considering what kinds of conversations we're having or how we're trying to approach our conversations as well to have like a more nuanced understanding of individuals within any grouping that we might construct. Okay. Also, something of interest to us that was not what we expected to find was that in the written responses, the people in the perspective-taking groups were using just as many stereotyped words and phrases as those in the stereotype suppression groups. So even if they seem to be focusing on more of the faces, for example, and maybe they were actively taking the perspective of the individual, they still seem to like lean into the stereotypes that they might innately have. So I don't think that perspective taking is like the end-all be-all like way to teach people how to overcome racism, though it could be one tool that isn't really employed very often.
0: I feel like I would go one step further and say that given that you're doing like just a cross-sectional study here you have people in the lab for some amount of time minutes or an hour there's only so much headway you can make by priming them with with perspective taking passages if somebody has stereotypical tendencies or thoughts i would imagine it's it's more difficult to kind of mitigate those than just a handful of priming experiments. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So the question, yeah, right. The question that we were posing wasn't like, is this the way to overcome racism or stereotypes? It was um, definitely more basic than that. Just trying to examine like how thought processes changed regardless of your background coming in, with the effort that you put into trying to take a perspective rather than just like basing it on whatever uh, initial assumptions you have, does that effort in and of itself help at all or not.
0: Okay, that's fair. I think that makes sense also as an undergraduate research project, you can't be expected to be doing extremely crazy groundbreaking, this is the answer to racism kind of research. Because I, I don't really think that, think that any single
1: yeah, yeah cognitive science or otherwise yeah. experiment is going to provide us with that.
0: Right. But at least in terms of, of, you know, like doing some kind of longitudinal study where you can actually get you could follow individuals who've been who, who are, let's say, you know, prescribed some kind of program of mm-hmm. advanced perspective taking,
1: right? And with a more nuanced understanding of who they are as individuals too, because of course that will interact as well with any any teaching that we receive after the fact.
0: Yeah, this isn't the first time that the that the topic of identity has come up on the podcast. And it always kind of sneaks in where you least expect it. Hmm. So maybe, maybe there's something to be said about identity in that it just kind of, I don't know, it just it, it weaves itself into, into, into the cognitive sciences somehow very yeah. nicely.
1: I mean, I'm sure it must. It affects us as researchers. It affects the kinds of questions that people ask. Uh, it matters where our participants come from. Um, I, are you familiar with like the weird participants?
0: Yes. Westernized, educated, uh, industrialized, industrialized, rich, rich democratic, democratic, I think.
1: Yeah. yeah, right. A lot of studies that take place at undergraduate univer- or universities are drawing from those very specific participant pools and that can drastically change the results we see too.
0: Mm-hmm. That's one of the main issues of undergraduate research is uh, as, as someone who conducted undergraduate research and knew, and knew people who did, your pool is really coming from predominantly other psychology students. Yeah. <laughs> and this is something that as a psychology student, you learn yeah. about very early on that you need to be aware yeah. of that bias.
1: I always think I would be a terrible participant in any study because I'm just so inundated with like, the theory of, of conducting the research. <laughs>
0: yeah. There should be some kind of check where you need to like if you check the box of I I actually create, I actually run <laughs> psych experiments, goodbye. You cannot yeah. try it's not this. That's like the definition of bias. Okay, cool. Yeah. Nice. It's so so that means that your your under your undergraduate research was quite different than the current research you're working on.
1: Yes, yes. I um uh, I gave up on humans and <laughs> moved to mouse studies along the so, way.
0: So I always find it interesting talking to people who study animals, because as, as someone who's conducted their own research, I was always interested in studying humans. That was kind of, if I was going to be doing research, I would want it to be in, in humans. What was it about studying humans that turned you off of studying humans, if there was something?
1: <laughs> no, that's not really um, how it came about. I wasn't like hardcore, not going to study humans anymore. I'd say, I, so the, I guess the transition happened a little bit was slower than that. It wasn't like I made the I woke up one day and made the decision. Actually, it it took like a lot of thought on my part to decide how I felt about the ethics too around animal research. But the questions that I am addressing in my PhD and that I was really curious about can't ethically be performed in humans. And I think that when we when we find that gap and when the answers that we could potentially get are so um, rich, then then it justifies the use of animal models.
0: I think that's a great way of describing it. If if your interests just ha- happen to be ones that would imply pain, you know, to be experienced <laughs> on the part of a human being, then maybe you need to look elsewhere for subjects.
1: Right. And um, my, my research all takes place in in the pregnant mice, so... Getting approval, like first of all, I don't think it would be ethical to do these studies uh, experimentally in humans, and getting approvals to do so uh, would be near impossible. Exposing pregnant women to lots of THC, for example, without really knowing the effects on their children, um, <laughs> or yes, you can do these I things to, uh, epidemiologically, but then you have to wait decades to really be able to track the the effects.
0: Yeah. Okay, that's totally fair. So you're studying small animals?
1: Yeah, T- to me, I, mice.
0: mice, okay, yeah, I, I assume small animal means mice, but do you use other small animals?
1: In our mice? lab, we only use, so our lab spans both like mouse and human research, but we don't have rats or rabbits or anything. Mm-hmm.
0: Are humans considered small animals?
1: <laughs> Maybe if they're very small, I guess they're yeah, technically small animals. I guess like
0: all child development <laughs> yeah. studies is just small animal. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you study mainly mice? In magnetic resonance imaging
1: mm-hmm.
0: environment, so M- MRI,
1: MRI, but yeah. not fMRI. Also fMRI. Okay, um, you want to yeah. tell us a
0: bit about those two kinds of uh, experimental yeah. imaging machines?
1: Yeah. Um, so MRI, uh, some some of you listeners may have uh, had them in the past, but basically, we can use magnets in order to image tissue. Specifically for us, we're very interested in brain tissue. And for structural, structural MRI, which is what's usually just called MRI, um, we're essentially forming a picture of the brain. And then we can look at different uh, structures in the brain, the volume of those structures, how they change over time or based on different experimental conditions. And we have quite good spatial resolution. So we're able to see uh, much more clearly, like which are different parts of different brain regions, for example, the differences in different tissue types or where ventricles might be, which are like spaces kind of in the brain. And in the functional imaging, we have a higher temporal resolution, which means that we can take lots of images over a shorter period of time. And then we can look at how the brain changes. specifically what we're looking at is blood oxygen. It's called bold signal, which is taken to be a correlate to neuronal activity. And this is, these are the studies where you see people say there was activation here, deactivation there, or connectivity between these two regions. We don't have as good spatial resolution, so we can't see very specifically. It's this subfield of the hippocampus. Maybe, maybe in humans you can, not in mice. Um, right, the mouse but brain
0: it must be like uh, ten percent the volume of a human brain, if so, not less. So, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Very small. Our voxel size. The voxels are the three D pixels are much smaller, smaller than centimeters. So that's kind of the difference between those. In structural, we're really looking at the structure of the different parts of the brain and functional. We're trying to determine something about how it actually works. And then I also use another technique, called magnetic resonance spectroscopy, where we choose a voxel in the brain. So we choose like one specific 3D region and we specifically image that section. And then what we're trying to learn about is the chemical composition of that region. So we can learn like what metabolites are present there and in what concentrations. And it allows us in the living animal to tell like how different chemical concentrations differ. Again, based on time or based on the experimental methodologies that we're using.
0: Okay, so you have you have metabolites in the brain. I know about metabolism in terms of my digestive system. So d- right. does your brain have a digestive system?
1: Does your brain have a digestive system? Um, <laughs> I would say no, as per se. But what we're looking at is different. Some some like neurotransmitters that you might have heard of, like GABA and glutamate. But additional things too, acetyl aspartate, which is Ooh, a marker. I've
0: never heard about of... <laughs> that. I don't think anybody's heard of that one. Let's stick to the the monoamines, maybe uh, serotonin and dopamine. Yeah. Uh,
1: no, those? we can't image those. Um, oh it's, no, it's uh, more. It's uh, it's a little selective because basically we're creating these spectra. I, maybe you're not recording video. Mm-hmm. You can't see my finger going <laughs> up and down. This is
0: this is um, just going to be audio. We're yeah. recording uh, a yeah. f- finger making a wave motion through yeah. the through, through the um, world. Yeah.
1: So based on the chemical composition of these different, we call them metabolites, they will fall in a different place along a frequency spectrum. And then we can say like, we know that water is always at this point. So relative to water, we know that GABA is always here. And so then we can find that GABA peak in all of the different scans and we can analyze the concentration of that metabolite. And like, uh, hypothetically, we'd be able to say something like, in this group of people or mice, we see that there is reduced GABA levels compared to another. And this is obviously a little bit a cursory explanation, but.
0: Even so, I, I think we've we, we already dropped a ton of new yeah. terminology <laughs> here that I guess we'll maybe keep encapsulated in this, in this one small section. Okay, so when you say that you, we can kind of detect these metabolites, mm-hmm. it's almost like they, they leave some kind of signature that can then be picked up by this spectroscopy.
1: Uh, Right, right. Because um, most of the time when we're doing MRI, we're uh, measuring from water molecules in the brain, but there's all this other stuff in the brain too. So basically spectroscopy allows us to say like, what else is there other than water in this specific area? Right. Um, And that's what we can compare. And it's just a really powerful metric because almost everything else like this has to be done ex vivo or after death but in this we can do it while the mice are still alive so we can do it multiple times across their lifespan and then we can learn things about how they develop so and you, that's like a huge part of it too is all these it uh, can be done multiple times
0: that's a huge benefit and all, right that you can do it multiple times and also you, you don't just need to kill an animal right away to be able to scan that rain right. and chop it up although do you also do that once they once they pass
1: uh, yes. At the end, we do also like, collect their brains because yeah. there are certain other things that we can learn that we can't learn from in vivo metrics.
0: So that's a pretty, pretty nice set of different kinds of paradigms that you're using or different different tools. You have regular structural MRI, Mm -hmm. which you said gives you really nice spatial images. So really high resolution visually. Functionally, the functional magnetic resonance imaging, you get the these like these really nice timestamps so you can see change. Mm -hmm. Then you're cutting the brains open once they die, but you're also looking at individual voxels while they're still alive multiple times. Are all of these different kinds of methodologies going to be used concurrently within a single study and then you're going to kind of just integrate all the data or is each one of these used kind of on its own
1: so I'm using all of them in addition to behavioral metrics in these longitudinal studies which just means throughout the lifespan and the real the real uh, question and benefit here is that we want to understand how what our uh, like experimental interventions do but We can learn so much more if we look at these different metrics, and then we can integrate them, as you said, into a more comprehensive analysis so that we can really characterize what are these changes, not just like structurally, how does the brain change, but also what's going on chemically, functionally, what's going on in the mouse behavior, and how do all these things relate to each other?
0: What is the lifespan of the mice that you're dealing with?
1: So my work is developmental, which essentially means that I'm really interested in very early life through to like adolescence or early adulthood. So in my experiments that I'll be doing, it'll go up to their ninetieth day of age, postnatal day we say after birth. So ninety days old mice. So um, ninety days is adulthood. Yeah. Yeah. yeah
0: uh huh. I guess you impregnate them after ninety days.
1: No, sorry. So these are all, so basically, we'll have our like mom mice that are pregnant. And the two things that I look at the first thing is maternal immune activation, so maternal illness. And the second thing is maternal THC exposure. So those are the interventions that are done in the moms, but then All of our like scanning and everything is done in like the the baby mice, the pups.
0: Ah, okay, that makes sense. So it's like it's like a multi generational longitudinal. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's
1: great.
0: (laughs) It's a family affair. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Okay, so so you're either either introducing some kind of pathogen into the mom mice, the mummy mice, and then you're also introducing THC. So uh, So separate studies psychoactive element of cannabis. Yeah.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: In the same uh, mice?
1: Separate studies.
0: Separate, yep. So,
1: yeah, yeah. So the first study is highly relevant given the current pandemic, but we really want to know. So the theory here is um, based on epidemiological studies, I mean, like, think about 1918 Spanish influenza. A lot of women were getting ill during their pregnancy, uh, and then they were okay, and they had their children. And in that subsequent generation, there were really high rates of specifically schizophrenia found, much higher than you would normally expect. So throughout the 20th century, and I mean, even now today, they do these developmental cohort studies where they'll take a bunch of women and find out if they were ill, and then they'll uh, look in their children and see if they see higher rates of autism spectrum disorder and schizophrenia, which they, they do see higher rates of this. And it's not just in response to a viral infection, bacterial infections as well. So the theory is that it's the maternal immune system being activated that leads to these uh, long-term changes.
0: So it's an indirect effect then. It isn't the actual virus in the mother's right. body that gets into the, That's right. the fetus. Yeah.
1: No. it's, it's, the, it's immu- the immune system itself. So in our mice, we don't inject a live virus. Uh, we inject a compound that mimics a byproduct of viral replication. So it like tricks the mom's body into thinking that it's sick. So we can really isolate hmm. the effects to the immune system effects, not the viral effects.
0: Okay. So uh, you're just, you're faking out the immune system.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And that's my first experiment.
0: Whoa. That is, that is a very interesting method.
1: Yeah. That's, uh,
0: <laughs> when did that come about? Is this, is this a method we've been using for many years or is this a, a newer discovery that we can... Fake out the immune system.
1: It's it's not completely novel. So my work actually builds on the work of another PhD student in the lab, Elisa Guma. Um, and she has done a very thorough characterization just looking at the structural results and behavior. So I'm really expanding on that into multiple modalities with the functional and MRS. So I I mean, I don't know an exact year, but the compound we're using has definitely been around for a couple of decades. It's not like a new, new concept, but yeah, it's uh, it hasn't been characterized quite like this before.
0: I would call a couple of decades relatively new.
1: Relatively, yeah. Relatively? In the, theory, in the field of uh, neuroimaging, I feel like things are coming out like every year, you know? Yeah. It moves pretty quickly.
0: But, we just yeah. had William Scott Thompson, episode 13, uh, a handful of weeks ago, talking about how in his lab, he's, he's actually mapping the brain. And okay. so he was using magnets as well, but I, he didn't describe it as magnetic resonance imaging. It, it, it almost sounded more like TMS or transcranial magnetic stimulation, Okay. Where, but it was, it was even different than that. It was like two mm-hmm. separate magnets that were kind of constructively interfering in some point of the brain to observe a pocket of activity. So oh. maybe y'all can collaborate. <laughs> I'm just can, the yeah. academic matchmaker here. <laughs>
1: If they make them in small enough size for the mice, maybe.
0: Right. Yeah, that might be. He was working with, uh, with, with human beings there. So you have these two different studies. One, where, which we just discussed more in detail, which is with the pregnant moms right. who then give birth yeah. to the babies. Then you're measuring early life development. Yes. What about the cannabis yes. studies? Yes.
1: What about the cannabis? What so, about those? Um, <laughs> So specifically, THC, delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, the psychoactive component in cannabis, which is responsible for what people describe as like the brain high or the mind high, distorting your perception of time, increasing perception of paranoia or anxiety sometimes. so, So that has been associated with increased risk for psychosis if it's used very heavily in adolescence. To what degree that association, how strong that is, um, is, uh, is still a point of research, it's uh, debatable, but it's quite robust that if you already have some form of a predisposition for psychosis, and then you're also exposed to like a lot of THC, it will lower the age of onset of a psychosis. Wow. So, this um, is a,
0: a result that's been replicated many times, presumably.
1: Yeah. So, so most often you see this in uh, some of those epidemiological studies where they'll take cohorts of people who have a first episode of psychosis and kind of look backwards to see how much cannabis they use, or they'll um, follow like huge populations of studies of, of people and look at how cannabis use correlates with psychosis. And this is not to say if you're going to smoke some pot, you're going to get a psychosis. Like that's not... That's not the like ground truth here. What does Um, heavy use mean then? Daily, multiple times per day, especially during early adolescence. So, like 13 to 17, if you're smoking pot every day and if you're smoking high THC concentration pot, then like that is gonna seem to increase the likelihood that you will develop a psychosis.
0: Right. Yeah. From what I know of cannabis, mom, if you're listening, I've never done that stuff. The cannabis, I guess maybe this is like pre-SQDC or pre-legalization, mm-hmm. where we now actually can go into a store, look at a container, know the percentage. Yeah. The, the cannabis that is smoked by adolescents today or in the last 10, 15 years is a lot stronger than what it was when the next generation, people who are now, you know, I guess the baby boomers, yeah. uh, what they right. were smoking when right. they were younger.
1: Absolutely. In like 1980, cannabis acquired off the street. Like uh, this is a study that they looked at cannabis that had been concentrated or had been uh, confiscated by I think it was the LAPD and measured it and uh, looked at the years that had been confiscated. 1980, it was like three or four percent THC on average. And by 2008, already it was like nine or 10 percent. So it's, it seems to be steadily increasing. And so now you can order very specifically like all CBD weed, or you can order like 20% THC weed, you know, it's, right. uh, yeah, it's. If you so, really want
0: psychosis, <laughs> yeah. Just psychosis. if you're like really, really gunning for it, then, yeah. <laughs> uh, you, know, you you could pick up the DSM and just kind of flip through and and, and see what kind.
1: So, but what we're looking at, so, so there is this association, but what we're, we're also really curious about is what happens when pregnant women are exposed to THC. It's fairly common for pregnant women to either continue using cannabis because they don't realize they're pregnant yet, or to initiate use because of a perceived effectiveness at reducing morning sickness, specifically nausea. So I'm very curious, and and, uh, morning sickness usually occurs during the first trimester. So Mm -hmm. I'm specifically looking at what THC exposure during the first trimester has, uh, the effects it has on early life development, and then also what if people have exposure before birth and then also during adolescence. How does that alter their neurodevelopment?
0: Okay, you did use very particular wording. You said how pregnant women perceive the effect Of cannabis on morning sickness, are you implying that it actually doesn't really do what people think it's doing?
1: So CBD, cannabidiol, which is the non-psychoactive component in cannabis, may really reduce nausea. That's often, it's um, often medically prescribed for different different thing chronic pain for example but. there's quite a bit of evidence that suggests that it, it can be therapeutic actually it's also been experimented with as an antipsychotic because THC and CBD together kind of counteract each other's effects so CBD can be protective against uh, some of the psychoactive components of cannabis but i used perceived because if a woman thinks it's helping her even if it's placebo then like you can sit, continue right. to do it. Okay, you know.
0: perfect. Yeah, I didn't want to get too hooked up on the on the word perceived specifically. So are you implying then that if I'm pregnant, then mm-hmm. I can take 100% CBD, marijuana, and that won't have the same kinds of effect <laughs> as the THC? I'm,
1: I'm not even a research doctor yet, let alone a medical doctor. I would not want to make any sort of recommendation for or against. I think at this stage, like there just hasn't really been enough research either way to to like say definitively it's safe or definitively it's not
0: because you you said that like doctors are prescribing this to pregnant so yeah i don't know if anyone's
1: prescribing it for pregnant women specifically but like for individuals who are undergoing chemotherapy for example cbd is often prescribed
0: So now that, we're, now that we're knee deep in the research, mm-hmm. you're, you're one year into your PhD.
1: That's right.
0: So you potentially have five more years. So this is plenty of time to run lots of longitudinal work yes. in mice that <laughs> live for 90 days. Yes. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. You've got, you, you've got so many iterations of this.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> have you set up a line of future experiments that you're going to be running that you can maybe tell us about if it's not confidential? in terms of like the right. like the long-term PhD plan?
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's fine for me to talk about them. Sure. My first experiment was the one with the maternal immune activation, and I collected all of the data. I'm in the process of analyzing it now, and we have all of these different modalities as we discussed a little earlier. So not only looking at them in and of themselves, but also integrating them will be a big portion of the data analysis for that project. And then for the second experiment, I'm going to be exposing the pregnant mice to THC and I'm going to be imaging them, developing very early life imaging. So like the first week after birth, which is actually equivalent in mice to the third trimester in humans in pregnancy. So like the mice are born early relative to humans. So this would be kind of a marker What we'd be looking at is trying to see what would be happening in humans in late pregnancy or very early life following THC exposure, because these are times that could be very sensitive. It's very hard to do fetal imaging or neonatal imaging in human babies, especially the fetus, because you've got movement from the mom, you've got movement from the fetus. You know, it's very difficult. It can be done, though. So that's like another reason why the mice here would provide a good model. So you're Um,
0: imaging... Like in this, in this week after gestation, you're imaging the parent.
1: So ima- no, imagine that in humans, you can do that. In humans, you can image a pregnant woman and acquire the image from the fetus uh, in, in her uterus. In mice, because they're born early... The first week of like the baby mouse's life, it, they're essentially still in the stages of development that okay. a human fetus would be in. But so they're just can, available. Yeah, you just,
0: yeah. You could pick yeah, them up. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> How small yeah. are these fetus mice? Are they like one centimeter long?
1: They're tiny. They're like, <laughs> I'm... I'm d- demonstrating yeah. my American. Like, if you they're hold like your inch. glasses,
0: <laughs> if you hold your glasses, yeah, they're like a like
1: wide. <laughs> yeah, no, um, we we call them like the jelly bean face because they just look <laughs> like little jelly beans. Like, That's what
0: I was imagining. Yeah. Can you even can you discern features on these on these fetuses? Yeah,
1: marks? initially they're blind and they haven't quite developed their ears yet, but they've got brains. You can so we can actually image, yeah, their brains and find the hippocampus, for example, or parts of the cortex.
0: Wow. But is their brain fully formed when they're, when they, when they come out of the womb?
1: It's not fully formed, but I would argue also like our brains aren't fully formed until we're like, you're
0: right. You're right. That was (laughs) 25. If, if then,
1: if if we're lucky. (laughs)
0: Yeah. I'm still working on it. Still still trying to read so I can get the alphabet down pat. (laughs) That's a big first step. Fully formed as in like you start to see folds in the cortex and you actually yeah. see all of the structures that would be, no- that would normally be found.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Because the adult brain does grow
1: right. Yes. You know, yeah.
0: after the baby's born, but a baby still has the, the, the structures that are required for.
1: Right. Yeah. So like the cerebellum is completely, it's like there and it will change in size and shape, but it's, it's present.
0: So these, these little jelly bean mice, you said they're blind.
1: Mm, yeah. So for a couple just, of days, I think.
0: So they're just like they're just totally complacent for the first couple of days. You can do whatever you want. They're like not even aware of anything.
1: Yeah. So I haven't done this early imaging yet, but from labs that have, I've heard that it's actually easier to do it in the first couple of days. What gets hard is when they're in like a like, kind of like a puppy phase later yeah. on when they want to start like exploring and stuff.
0: I always found that way that we call them puppies. It's just, uh, I don't know how like how, how young dogs would feel about us calling little tiny fetus <laughs> little
1: baby mice fetus. Puppies like,
0: hey no that's us
1: we're the puppies get out of here yeah Fun. so then the third experiment will be a combination between the pregnant mouse being exposed to THC and exposure during adolescence like roughly adolescence in the mice and looking at that combination that's the idea at least Right. This is a couple years out.
0: Sure, no, but it's it's nice to be able to actually plan that yeah. far ahead and to know what what comes, because by the time you get there, you will already have plans for follow up experiments as yeah. well. I asked really just because I'm curious and also I, I think it's interesting for other graduate students to hear about hmm. what it is to plan ahead and kind of <laughs> be able to see see forward and not just you know do something right now and then okay I'm done this experiment now what right so pl- I think I think planning is super super important
1: yeah especially to make like a cohesive set of projects that at the end of five years or whatever to say something about
0: exactly <laughs> and i do like that you have so much interconnectedness between these studies you
1: well have, i think like, that's where illness. it comes back to Cogsci, right like yep
0: totally interdisciplinary. Interdisciplinary. yeah yeah that's it that's seduction it got you it's <laughs> fully it's fully <laughs> infiltrated into your brain
1: once a cognitive scientist, always, always. a cognitive
0: scientist. <laughs> I feel like when you cook dinner, like all like all the dishes have the same spice and it's like the rule. Like the,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> maybe. So one question that I always have for people who study mice, and I say always, I think maybe two or three people ever on uh, this podcast and in life, but I'll ask it here, which is you find, let's say you find all these great results in in mice, mm. how, how confident can we be that we can actually extrapolate these results to humans? This
1: is, the translation is really important, especially if you're gonna say anything about psychiatric disorders or development. Yeah, I'd say that because some of the metric, well, almost all of the metrics that we're using can also be done in humans. Like obviously it's not quite as easy as an exact like one-to-one relationship, but we can look at magnetic resonance imaging in humans. We can look at MRS. We get some of the behaviors actually Translate. So, what I'd really be looking for, as I like interpret the findings too, is how do the results we find correlate with those that we see in humans who have high cannabis exposure or who have or whose moms smoked a lot of weed while they were pregnant.
0: I see. So, you you compare your studies to studies done in humans that were of a different nature, I guess. Let's say, like less invasive, in a sense, and less ethically questionable. Right.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. So we'll never be able to probably know like, what if we expose pregnant women intentionally to high THC concentrations? Because that would not probably be ethical. Mm -hmm. But there are studies where they ask women about their THC use. And with self-report, there always comes some question too, there can be a high stigma around it. So people may not always want to report honestly, but Something very interesting that I learned about recently is called a meconium analysis, where basically when there's a newborn baby and they have like their first poop, uh, they can analyze the content of that poop. I've Um, heard about this before. (laughs) And it can tell you about the intrauterine environment because they haven't eaten anything yet. Yeah. Uh, So I think that's, and then you can learn about THC exposure specifically too.
0: You can find traces of of THC in the the, the 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 meconium. That is also crazy that, that like, one of the first things that infant does in this world is poop.
1: Yeah, it's like cry, poop.
0: Such a like foreshadowing for what life is all about. <laughs> just, it's just 100% defecation. That's why we're all here. We have people reading tea leaves. We got to get more into the meconium. Is it, is it only called meconium when, it, when it's the, the fetus expulsion?
1: I think so. As far as I know, yeah. I've really only barely dabbled in the meconium, but oh, cool. um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know
0: if it if it's if it's like normal or correct to say like I, I had a cup of coffee and it really got my meconium going, her. Yeah.
1: I no, I don't think so. I think it's specifically like the first one before you <sighs> eat, eat anything.
0: There's something about the fact that we even named it that's weird. <laughs> uh, like it was, it was it's it's an important enough and stable enough phenomenon that we're like, yeah, I guess we gotta <laughs> yeah. identify this with a very specific word.
1: Gotta call it something.
0: Yeah. Cool. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up poop and that found its way into the discussion. <laughs> we've, we've kind of covered it all. We've gone from identity to meconium, so I, I think that pretty much the
1: full spectrum.
0: call it a day. I do have a couple more questions. One is PhD. Obviously, still, still plenty of years left in the PhD. You might not have an answer for this yet, but you did mention earlier you want to teach, and that was something that you realized early on when you started doing research. What's, the, like, what's your lo- long-term goal at this point?
1: Yeah, so it would be amazing to go back to um, kind of another, like a liberal arts school in the style that I attended, where there's a real balance between research and teaching. Uh, that's something that I'm really passionate about, science communication, learning how to expand how I talk about my work and really reach the widest audiences possible, which is why I think like your podcast is such a great idea. And I like I, I really enjoy doing research. I always want that to also be a part of what I do. But the idea of having a little bit more balance between the two, like something like that, uh, really appeals to me too. Compared to the, like a PIs at McGill, who it's almost completely focused on research, and teaching is kind of an add-on for a lot of them.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, so far you've done a phenomenal job at communicating scientifically, so I applaud you on that.
1: It's the fetal of poop. <laughs> oh
0: yeah, Got, gotta get that poop.
1: Everyone tunes in then.
0: <laughs> yeah, people's ears perked up because they've already been fully developed because they're not a, a one month old jelly bean. In my, in my fetus. Okay, good, I, I, I totally back that. I myself would like to teach, not in like not at the university level, but anybody who has aspirations to be on the pursuit of knowledge and then to share that knowledge i think it's great we we need people like that who can who can explain things well mm. who are invested and enthusiastic about what they study what they research and and to be able to communicate that effectively which i think you've done tremendously well today Second to last question, we're just gonna run through them here. Not that we're in a rush, not that we're in a rush. Penultimate question, Lani Kupo, PhD student, you made it to potentially the final step of your academic career, unless we got some postdocs coming. I'm curious to know, as I'm with many graduate students, how is it that you, Lani Kupo, strike a healthy and at least for you, effective work-life balance
1: that's an excellent question. Uh, how do I strive to strike that balance? I think. Sure, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is something that I've been thinking about, especially since quarantine started and COVID and it's uh, all too easy to like wake up. And first thing in the morning, I'm on my computer working last thing at night, finishing things up, especially like right before deadlines. I mean, I think my experience as a graduate student is that it really comes in waves. There'll be times where I'm like, I have plenty of time. I'll, I'll do whatever. And then there's other times where I'm like, it's crunch time. I think that what has there's, there's two main factors that have been key to me. One is maintaining relationships with people, talking to my family back in the States, but also making new friends here in Montreal, both with my lab members and other people beyond that, uh, and really like... Still trying to prioritize those relationships because it's the people who like get me through most days. <laughs> um, and then the other is um, a, a healthy addiction to Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> um, <laughs> because you, you gotta show up, you know, like anything else, you can kind of be like, oh, I'll do it later. But if you, if you have a session planned, you, you gotta show up at the Are table. those
0: live games or is this online?
1: So since COVID, we've been mostly playing online
0: but this is something that that you've been doing for a very long time.
1: Yeah, I guess uh, almost as long as I've been in Montreal. So okay. a year and a half,
0: a little over that. Okay. And are you a dungeon or a dragon? And is that the correct question to ask? <laughs>
1: uh, I interact with both the dungeons and the dragons.
0: Okay, I don't have much on that front. I was, I was a Yu-Gi-Oh! kid. Um, Digimon but Dungeons and Dragons I I know it's a different world it's not a television show it's like its own thing Um, and you also sing
1: yes yeah I'm
0: gonna ask you to sing for us because it's not what this is about and uh, it it might not translate phenomenally over audio through a zoom but how did you get into singing
1: Uh, I started singing when I went to college at Occidental and when I came here, I really wanted to keep it up. I joined an acapella group, Beats and Medleys or BAM. And I also, one of my best friends here in Montreal uh, has just finished his master's in opera. And he connected me with my, one of my current teachers, her name is Sarah Dufresne. Uh, I, I just really enjoy keeping music part of my life. That's great. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. So you do those things, I guess. Those 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 are integrated into your into your non academic activities, I suppose.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I keep myself less busy with my work by making myself more busy with everything else.
0: Okay, that's totally fair. Would you say, like, if if you if you would characterize yourself in terms of the like your your relationship with your work, how would you how would you describe that relationship?
1: Hmm. I'd say it's a relationship of passion. passion. <laughs> um, yeah. I I think that like. I I put in long hours like almost every graduate student I know does but it's not because I feel like I'm driven by like a fear of failure I feel like I love my projects I think they're so interesting I really want to see them like done justice and I think my lab is so my supervisor is Malar Chakravarti and I think he's an incredible supervisor really good at like really inspiring his students to push themselves and give it their all but also like remember that like there's more to life than work (laughs) even as a graduate student and if we don't build these habits now i really don't think that it's going to be possible to like integrate them easily into like an academic life in the future
0: i I love that last point about kind of training yourself to learn that balance or to find that balance now so you don't get lost in the sauce as the kids say (laughs) so so great nice final question you're doing great so far. You're, you're, you're really hitting the nails on the head here. You've arrived. Final question. This is a question that uh, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while now, or at least the last many, many episodes as a listener, thank you so much if you fit into this category, you know what's happening right now. It's the last question. And the last question is the following that you will hear right now. The question right. is, how would you describe yourself as an academic? and how do you describe yourself as a non-academic one to three words each either individual words or phrases and are they the same
1: mhm one one phrase of one, one to three,
0: three words? words exactly yeah one to three words each could be words or phrases are they the same
1: okay um i think they are the same um so that eases my work a little bit.
0: (laughs) Are you just saying that to to make it easier?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm just trying to decrease the workload. No, no, no. I think they are the same. I think that most people who know me in the lab environment and outside would say that I'm pretty similar in both. Mm -hmm. I would say that I strive to be multifaceted in my approach and I'm a bit tempestuous in my delivery
0: tempestuous what does tempestuous mean
1: <laughs> jargon if we've arrived at the jargon um i mean it in it possesses the quality of a tempest or storm
0: mm, okay inclement
1: perhaps perhaps, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> well that makes me think of like really rainy days yeah w- which is like what i'm
0: yeah, currently ex- little, experiencing yes, <laughs> yeah betrayal. multifaceted tempestuous Okay, so th- these are the two words you use to describe yourself as just, just overall. This is you.
1: I I would say so.
0: You're a I, you're yeah. a complex storm of sorts. <laughs> cool, nice, nice. Very metaphorical. I I feel like I haven't learned a thing. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to break this stuff down figure out what, what it actually
1: means hey you want me to put myself in two words <laughs> they're gonna be multiple syllables no,
0: i i love it multifaceted That's that's five tempestuous that's four that's nine syllables two words of average syllable length four and a half that's 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 a pretty solid <laughs> syllable length average i appreciate that <laughs> so i think we made it i has
1: anyone ever flipped the question on you no I'm not saying this is the episode where you have to do it, but I feel oh. like uh, you owe it to your listening public.
0: Oh my goodness. It's happening. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Woo.
0: Okay. First of all, thank you. Thank you for being the first one, uh, episode 16, lucky number 16. I was born August 16th. So. Um,
1: Happy belated.
0: Okay. Th- thank you. Thank you. Um, oh. Didn't, didn't expect it to come this early. I figured maybe episode 100, somebody might finally <laughs> pop the question. How would I describe myself as a person? See, this is why I'm doing the podcast. This is why I'm <laughs> hosting, because I don't have to answer the hard questions. <laughs> My job is so much easier. Um, so, yeah. Luckily, I I, I have thought, about how I would describe myself, not necessarily specifically to answer this question, but this does actually bring me to an important point I should make just so that you're not completely misled when you leave this podcast, but I actually withdrew from my master's degree a month ago. Okay. So I was doing graduate research up until this middle of the summer, at which point I decided to uh, pivot fields. So I'm currently in a limbo period applying to another master's degree in teaching and learning mcgill starting next may i haven't gotten in yet haven't applied yet but applications in 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 the making
1: best of luck with that too i appreciate that that. excellent
0: thank you so one word i would use to describe myself that this is like it 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 pervades all facets of my life is creativity Mm -hmm. i am a lot more interested in creation than in consumption So I do enjoy reading and watching videos and you know listening to other people talk, but I also really enjoy producing new things mm-hmm. and like observing them in the world, listening to them, seeing them, art in many forms, for example, or a podcast. So creativity or creation, that would be kind of like the overarching term. And then I guess like pedagogy or learning, mm-hmm would be another experience, like the bi-directional experience of teaching and learning. I know that's more words. So I, w- I would say creativity, teaching, learning, or creation, teaching, learning. Those are my three. And uh, I guess it's hard to describe myself as an academic because I'm not currently in it. But I guess as an academic, it's just, I, the three words would be wanting more creativity. <laughs>
1: I think that's very fair, and I think that those are all encapsulated very well in uh, in your podcast, and the questions and the format.
0: I I hope that it gets communicated um, so that even though I this is the first time I'm verbalizing it, people could have potentially even come up with those words as for descriptors uh, for myself. So I do really appreciate you uh, flipping the question on me. Thank you. I will uh, I will continue to expect that maybe future guests will do the same and i'll have to hone my answer better now that i know that it's an it's an actual possibility so thank it's you cool very to see much
1: how those change too
0: oh and I'm, I'm sure they will have you ever taken the uh the the myers-briggs uh 16 personalities test i have and do you know what what your what your what your four letter code
1: is it fluctuates
0: okay it most changes. recently
1: i can't it's been a couple years okay. i don't generally like personality tests too much right
0: it's more of a fun thing when you're trying yeah. to procrastinate, but feel like you want to learn something. <laughs> oh, what did you do today? I, I spent two hours filling out a personality test scrupulously. So.
1: <laughs> Just to learn that I'm like Arya Stark. <laughs> nice.
0: Yeah, I, I'm judgmental. Cool, cool, cool. Close computer, walk away. <laughs> All right. Well, this is this is the end of the road. It's been a great road. Uh, so thanks again so much, Lonnie, for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure listening to you discuss your research. I've learned a lot and you're a great communicator. So thank you very much for being here. Have a thanks great so much. day, afternoon, life.
1: <laughs> <laughs> thanks. It was really fun.
0: Awesome. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at Cast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or, if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly, on Sundays, and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts, so... Feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.